right, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open up to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. When you get it, say, got it. All right. Psalm 126. I'm going to be reading and preaching from the NIV. Title of this sermon is Remember What God Has Done. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is God's word for us today. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the power and the aliveness of your word. Thank you that you are able to take the same word, divide it up into dozens of different pieces, and speak to each one of us in this room today. And so we are expectant that you will do that. We open our hearts and our ears, and we ask that you would speak to us. Thank you that you know each individual person here and the place that they are in. You know those who are in a season where they can see all the fruit and those who are in a season of maybe pruning where it feels like super dry and parched. And thank you, Lord, that you are able to, by your word and by the power of your spirit, speak to each one of us in the place that we are at. I submit myself to you. I surrender my my plans and my, my notes, my mind, my heart, my thoughts to you. I ask that you would minister through me to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. When uh, I was in Bible college with Joseph, laughing with a Jamaican accent in my sleep, uh, you're 18 years old, you you kind of look at, I looked at the world through these rose-colored glasses where it was like, I think everything's kind of just going to be mostly good, right? And then you, you get married and <laughs> you have kids and then you like get bills and then you, you lose people and relationships get difficult and there's division. And the older you get, the more you realize like, oh, dang, so that's not like going to be that good all the time. And as we look at our world, there's a lot of pain. As we look at our own lives, we, we see a lot of pain. And the older you get, the more pain that there is. Some of this brought on by ourselves, right? Bad decisions that we have made to hurt ourselves or hurt others. Some of it brought on by other people and their poor decisions, things that affect us negatively, either directly or indirectly. And then there's things that bring pain just because of the fallen world that we live in, because uh, things are not fully right until Jesus returns. Things are going to be out of balance. Relationships will deteriorate. People will get sick. People will die. Tragedy will strike in what is often the most inconvenient time and for no reason at all. But what if someone could bring beauty out of all that pain? What if God could actually bring good even out of evil. Well, Psalm 126 is a proclamation that God can resurrect what is past and can give renewal and hope for the future. 
So today I wanna look back at God's faithfulness, but I don't wanna do it just as like a, a group of people as a church, although we're gonna do that, but I wanna help you as an individual maybe have some tools for how to do that in your own life. When you find yourself in a place of suffering, when you find yourself in a difficult time, in a place of sorrow or even doubt, what can you do to find your way through it and to the other side? Well, Psalm 126 shows us the path. There's three things I'm gonna mention. The first one is, it starts with remembering God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. This is what the psalmist is doing here. Let's read it again. When he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. And so here is the psalmist writing this song. And what is he doing? He is remembering how God had delivered his people, Israel, from captivity in Babylon. The Babylonian captivity was a, a painful, terrible time for Israel. But it was also a necessary time for Israel because while it was a time of struggle, it was also a time of reckoning. Israel had to come to grips with some, own issue, some issues in their own lives and as a people. See, they had allowed sin to steadily creep into their lives. And because sin always separates us from God, it always pushes us away from God, they'd become a people who were super far from God, which eventually led to their captivity in Babylon. But then they're in Babylon, and while they're there, they come to their senses. They realize, oh, wow, we've made some really poor decisions that have pushed us away from God. They acknowledged their sin for what it was. They called it sin. And then they repented of their sin and turned back to God. And God did what he does. He forgave them. And he delivered them from their captivity. And he brought them back to their homeland. And this redemption of God delivering from Babylon, bringing them back to the homeland, that redemption was so good. And it was so thorough that it almost seemed too good to be true. When we came back from our captivity, whoo, we were like those who dreamed. It was so miraculous, it was so beautiful, it was so obviously divine that they almost had to pinch themselves to make sure that they weren't dreaming. In other words, only the divine, only, only God could do something this miraculous and this wonderful. But not everything that happens in life is that miraculous and not are that wonderful. Not every season is that miraculous and wonderful. Not every season is a cause for rejoicing. Not for us and not for ancient Israel. In fact, at the time of the writing of this psalm, things were not wonderful for ancient Israel. Because although the psalmist is recalling what God had done previously, the writer finds himself in a different season and he gives us a clue as to the season that he is in right here when he says in verse four, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Restore our fortunes. Why does he say restore our fortunes? Well, it means that their fortunes had been lost, stolen, or wasted. Like streams in the Negev. The Negev was the name given to the, the southernmost part of Judah where in the, uh, the summer months, it would get so dry that everything would just wither away. 
and they would have to wait for the winter rains to come and replenish the stream beds for things to start growing again. The word Negev literally means dry and parched. He says, those who sow with tears. Why is the psalmist writing about sowing with tears? Because his people are crying. His people are mourning at this moment. His people are hurting. They're brokenhearted at their present circumstances. When God brought us out of captivity, oh man, we were like those who dreamed. Our lives were prosperous. Our souls were alive and our hearts were full. But now our fortunes are gone. Our souls are dry and our hearts are broken. Israel had repented while in Babylon and in turn their souls were refreshed and their joy returned. But like all of us have a tendency to do, they had slowly slipped away again. And with their backsliding, so went their communion with God. And when their communion with God got uh, diminished, it diminished, so went their, their vibrance in their life. And then so went their joy to the point where they were parched and dry, just like the Negev. Every child of God has seasons of great spiritual plenty in this life, seasons where our souls are full, our hearts feel alive, we're, we're vibrant. Even maybe seasons where it's like, dang, dude, is this real? This is so good. Is this my life right now? This is beautiful. But when we find ourselves in a season of pain or deep uh, anguish or stress even or doubt, wondering if it will ever be as good and abundant and joyous again, we must do what the psalmist did and remember God's faithfulness and do it with gratitude. How do we do that practically? Three words. I'm gonna ask you to repeat them after me. Say proclaim. Man, y'all are sleepy, sleepy, just a little bit. Somebody say proclaim. Oh, there you go. Say declare. And say recall. We must proclaim God's promises, declare God's character, and recall God's track record. You're, you're struggling. You're in a situation that is difficult. You need to remember God's faithfulness. How do you do it? Proclaim, declare, recall. This is what the psalmist is doing right here. He's looking back at God's faithfulness and proclaiming the promises of God. He is declaring the character of God, and in doing so, he's recalling then the past track record of God. And so it's as simple as, if you got nothing else, it's as simple as, man, has God saved you? Has he redeemed you? Has he forgiven you? What has he redeemed you from? Has he provided for you? Has he given you what you've needed? Has God shown you mercy? Man, his promises then are true. Has God been compassionate to you? Has he loved you unconditionally even when you didn't deserve it and when you weren't acting in a love, lovely way? Has God been gracious to you, not give, giving you more than you deserve? Okay, then his character is true. And as we proclaim his promise, as we declare his character, we are recalling who he has been. We are recalling his past track record. And this reminds us who he is and what he has done. And if he has been that in the past, then we have confidence that he will be that now and in the future. And when we do this, friends, we don't just, we don't just do it to do it. But we do it with gratitude. And so we don't just uh, proclaim 
and declare and recall, but we do it with thankfulness and worship in our hearts. And so we don't just say, God, you saved me. We say, dang, Lord, you saved me. Wow, thank you. We don't just say, God, you, yeah, that's right, you provided for me. Wow, Lord, you provided for me. I wanna, I wanna stop and praise you for that. I wanna say thank you for that. We don't just say, God, you're good. We say, wow, Lord, you've been good to me. I wanna, I wanna pause and say thank you for it. I wanna worship you for that. I wanna say thank you for being so good to me. Uh, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this last year was a season of transition for us. I was on staff as the preaching and vision pastor at Reality Ventura for the previous five years. And, um, and then we got to the season where I felt really clearly like God was calling me to step over in my position and to move into a part-time role and then for somebody else to come in and fill that preaching and vision role. And, and as I, I alluded to, God orchestrated it perfectly and, and uh, brought, brought Tim Chaddock onto our team the, the unknown component that we didn't really say publicly or we didn't uh, talk about it as explicitly as we could have was if there was going to be finances for me to stay on staff in a part-time role. And so we'd say to our church, we'd give updates every you know, few weeks, and we'd say, hey, the plan is for Dom to stay on staff in a part-time role if there's finances to do so. We'd always throw that caveat in there, right? What the church didn't know, and we didn't feel like we needed to say anything, was, but if we were to be honest, we don't know if there's going to be finances for Dom to stay on. And so just on a really practical level, I was looking at my job and my house and my children who are getting older and more expensive, and I was like, Lord, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. Like, I'm at a point in my life where it's like this, I've been doing a couple things in my career. And so I've been like, I've been pastoring on staff at churches where Thank God I get a salary, and I've been doing full-time music. Well, all music was shut down because coronavirus, right? Nobody was touring. So I was like, I can't make any money over there. And then I don't know if there's going to be finances for me to stay on staff at the church. So from a very practical, like I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a human financial component, I was like, we don't know how we're going to do this. It was a very scary time. And so we'd share these things with the church. And on the inside, though, I was like, dude, I don't know how this is going to work. I'd go home. My wife would be like, hey, baby, so is the church going to be able to keep you on staff? Or, and we were like, I don't know. And so I, I was experiencing, the, the closer it got to that moment where I, we had to make a decision if I was going to be able to stay on or not, the more uh, fear I was starting to experience, right? The more anxiety I was starting to experience. What was I going to do for work? And then right in the middle of it, our landlord decided to sell the house that we were renting, and I don't know if you tried to rent a house. Well, Joseph just talked about Stephen trying to rent a house. This dude was about to live at Oxnard because he couldn't find a house in Santa Barbara, right? Which, for people who live here, that's like you might as well be in San Diego, right? People who move here from, like, Tulsa or San Diego, they're like, Oxnard is only 45 minutes away, no big deal. But, you know, you live in Santa Barbara, it feels like an eternity away. When I lived in Carp, we were going to buy a house in La Conchita, and Kate Merrick said to me, you can't buy a house in La Conchita. I was like, really? It's six minutes away. She's like, no, it's like a different area code. It's a long-distance call if you call down there. I was like, all right. So you, if you try to rent a house, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's, it, it's difficult right now. So our landlord said, we're selling the house. You got to move out. Couldn't find a place to live. Couldn't find a place. There was nothing to rent. Couldn't afford to buy a place. We were like, okay, I might not have a job, but now we don't have a place to live. And so as you can imagine, a lot of anxiety was rising up in my heart. And so as I sat with it, I realized 
oh, dang, man, this is like the 10th time in my adult life that I've been in this spot. And all the nine previous times, God has been faithful to provide. But here I am wondering if he's going to do it this time. And so I came to Psalm 126, and I was like, all right, I'm going to do what the psalmist did, which was an ancient practice in ancient Israel. And so I would go on these long bike rides on my beach cruiser in my neighborhood, and I would do Psalm 126. I would start proclaiming God's promises. I would declare his character. And in doing so, I would remember his past track record. And I would do it out loud because something powerful happens when you do it out loud. And so I'd be coming down the street with my dreadlocks and my beach cruiser. And I'd just be talking out loud to nobody. Parents are like asking their kids, hey, come inside. The crazy dreadlock dude's coming down the street again. Come on. Right? They'd be bringing their children inside. And I would just start at the beginning. Every day I'd start at the beginning. Lord, when I was a baby, I went into septic shock. And it was a miracle, but somehow you saved my life. And then when I was three years old, my parents got divorced. And it was a painful time, but you were with me. And then when I was in junior high, I was in an abusive situation with someone in my family. And you gave me the grace to be able to get out of that. And then I got arrested, and the city didn't press charges. And then I found you, Lord. I'm going from the beginning, right? I'm just starting at the beginning. And I'm just remembering what God has done in my life. And then, and then Lord, you brought me my wife. Gosh, Lord, thank you for my wife. It turned into gratitude, right? And then we had Selah, our kid. And then I'm just, I'm just remembering. And then, and then we had this tragedy. And gosh, but you were there, Lord. And I've seen you work beauty out of it. And so I'm just recalling his faithfulness. And as I was recalling his faithfulness, and as I was recalling his past track record, you know what happened? Hope for my present circumstance and hope for the future began to rise up in me. I didn't even try. I didn't even try. All I had to do was just look back. And all of a sudden, hope began to rise up in me. I was proclaiming. I was declaring and I was recalling. And as I did, hope rose up in my heart. And so when we find ourselves in a season of difficulty, we have to remember. We got to look back and remember God's faithfulness. Well, that's cute, Dom. That's cute, man, to remember all the good stuff that God has done. That's, that's, yeah. But, dude, I don't live in the past. I'm living right now. And right now, it's a difficult time. What I can see right now is it's difficult. Right now, I don't have a lot of joy. Right now, what I have maybe is tears. So what do I do? That brings us to the second thing that we see the psalmist doing. What do you do when all you have is tears? You sow your tears. I love how honest the psalmist is being about his present situation. He is lamenting. It says in verse 5, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. He doesn't say, hey, stop crying, man. He doesn't even say, just so you know, at some point, you're not going to cry anymore. He just acknowledges, hey, you're going to cry. There's going to be some weeping. There's going to be some tears. They're part of the process. As a culture, we don't, we don't, like, know this lamenting thing. We think lament, that just means you're, you're sad forever. But the process of lament is this beautiful process where you allow yourself to sit in the grief but not disconnected from God's faithfulness, which causes a hopeful expectation for the future. Many of us have bought into this idea 
that pain is to be avoided at all costs. And if we can't avoid it, then we should minimize it or at least pretend that it doesn't exist. But Psalm 126 and the entire Bible teaches us that there's a different way to view our pain, a different way to view our tears. Not only are the tears okay, given to us by God for a reason, but more than that, you need to know that for the child of God, your tears are actually seeds that can be sown to produce something good in the future. That's good, right? Because I don't know about you, but if I have an option to just shed tears or sow tears, I wanna sow some tears. How do we do that? Well, it starts with being okay with having the tears in the first place. The psalmist is not afraid to acknowledge that he and his people are weeping right now. That's why he's talking about this. Those who trust in Christ don't sorrow to the point of despair because those who despair have no hope, but God's people do sorrow. And when you do, there are a couple things you have to remember. First of all, you gotta remember that just because it's painful does not mean it's not fruitful. Just because it's painful doesn't mean it's not fruitful. Anybody who's ever exercised knows this to be true. You run harder and faster than you ever have. Your lungs begin to burn. That's the sensation you're feeling. It is your lungs expanding and contracting, building their capacity beyond what they had before so that in the future you can actually go further, stronger. The pain is actually a sign that something is growing and uh, producing better results in you. Same, you go to the gym. You wake up the next day and you're like, I'm so sore. The soreness is a litmus test that you actually did something yesterday and then it's gonna produce results tomorrow. Just because something hurts you doesn't actually mean that it's bad for you. In fact, Romans 5 says that we also glory in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that the suffering produces. What does it produce? Perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. The pain of suffering in the life of a believer actually does something good. I have this huge tattoo on my arm, right? If you spread it out, it'd be like the size of somebody's back. I'm not one of those dudes who just like, gets tattoos because they're cute or whatever. Like, oh, it'd be fun. I'm just going to like go spend hundreds or thousands of dollars and sit in some dude's chair while I'm in pain for this ended up being like 30 hours. Right? I'm not one of those dudes. The reason I have this tattoo on my arm is because there's 22 elements in this tattoo that represent 22 life-changing lessons that I learned after the loss of our son, Nehemiah, when he was just one day old. It was the most painful, excruciating thing that I have ever experienced. And also, it has led to more fruit and goodness in my life than anything else. So much so that I can now look back seven years later and actually be thankful for it. I'm not thankful that Nehemiah died, but I am thankful for the pain that it caused because I know that that pain produced things in me that I could have gotten no other way and from nowhere else. I think this is why James could write in James 1, consider it 
pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We read a verse like this and we're like, for real, dude, are you like, consider it pure joy? When you face many trials, like, who does that? You not, no, nobody. Like, unless you're faking it, we've all faked it. Like, oh, no, just praising God, man. Just praising the Lord. Smile on your face. But you're, no, we got pain inside. How do you consider it pure joy when you fall into various trials? It's not joy about the trial. It's joy about what's coming after the trial. Right? Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It doesn't say that Jesus had joy in going to the cross. No, we know what happened. He was in the garden. He didn't, he was like, Father, if there's another way. Now he had tears, blood coming out of his skin. He was so stressed out and nervous and, and even terrified about what was happening in the cross. He wasn't like, oh, the cross, it's gonna be so good. For the joy set before him, that's on the other side of the cross. He endured the cross because he knew there was joy after the cross. The reason that James could say consider it pure joy is because he knew, he knows what's coming after the trial. We consider joy in the trial because we know what the trial will produce. And so then that means that when you shed tears, your tears are not just falling on dry ground. They're falling on ground that goes in like a seed and that seed will eventually reap a harvest. Your present suffering may be painful, but that doesn't mean it's not good. And because you know that it's gonna produce good, you can even have joy in the midst of it. In the same way, when your circumstances change from bad to good, you need to know that that doesn't mean that God has changed from bad to good. When our circumstances change, God remains the same. Just because life is not good, it does not mean that God is not good. Just because your circumstances have changed for the worse doesn't mean that God has changed for the worse. Once you get through a trial, you're able to look back, right? And you're like, oh, that's what the Lord was doing. Okay, I see. I, I get it now. Okay, cool. But when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see that, right? You don't have like the clearest vision. <laughs> and we have amnesia, like I've, I've just forgotten all the years and all the times that God has been faithful when you're in the middle of it. And when this happens, we end up making a meaning about God based on our present circumstance. We end up looking at our circumstance and we're like, I can't see God working in this right now. Therefore, God must not be working in this. I can't see how God is gonna work this out for my good. Therefore, God's not working it out for my good. I can't see God's provision for this thing that I need. Therefore, God is not providing for me, right? We make this meaning about God based on the experience that we're having. This is a very real thing for many of us, maybe even right now. You might even know something is true in your mind, and you could preach it maybe or say it to somebody else, but you're not sure if it's true for you. Like, I, I know, man, the Lord is good. I'm just not sure that he's good to me or that he's gonna be good to me right now. We allow our circumstances to dictate what is and isn't true about God, which is not only wrong, but it's dangerous. Let me put it up on the screen like this. Friends, you do not interpret God's character based on your circumstances. 
you interpret your circumstances based on God's character. So when it seems like there is a discrepancy and you can't figure out how God's character fits in with your painful circumstance, you don't morph your understanding of God to like fit your interpretation of your circumstance. You gotta stick with the thing that you know is true. You gotta stick with the perfect thing. The perfect thing is what God says about his character. Your ability to interpret your situation is not perfect. That's the, where the fault is, right? And so if something's gotta be morphed and you gotta adjust it, it's not gonna be, oh, well, this must mean this then about God. No, 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 no. This must mean this about my situation. I'm not seeing it right. There's something else in this situation that I'm not seeing because God says this about himself. Therefore, okay, there must be something I'm not seeing in my situation. We do not interpret God's character based on our circumstance. We interpret our circumstance based on God's character. Now, to be fair, uh, that's often easier said than done, right? And I've been there. You've been there. We are there. It's difficult, which means that it's often going to require quite a bit of faith. Sometimes we're going to have to say, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't see this yet, but I know that it's true, and so I'm going to believe that that's who you are. I'm just gonna go with what you said about yourself. We sing it sometimes, right? Even though I can't see you, you're working. Even though I can't feel it, you're working. You never stop working. I can't see it, but I know what you said. You said that you never stop working. That's what I'm gonna bank on. Lord, I can't see how your goodness plays out in this situation, but you said you're gonna be good. So I'm gonna trust that you're gonna be good. Listen, God gets no pleasure in seeing his children in pain. He didn't create sin. He didn't create suffering. We did that. But God, in his infinite wisdom, can somehow use the most painful things in life to make something beautiful in us. He can even take things that are orchestrated by Satan himself, as we see in the book of Genesis chapter 50. What the enemy meant for evil, God somehow turns it not just to be neutral, but he turns it for good. And miraculously, I think that the most beautiful, powerful, fruitful things in life actually come from the worst situations. There is no diamond without the insanely intense pressure. There is no beautiful refined gold without the blazing hot fire. There is no spring without the winter. There is no glory without the pain. And so this means then that maybe there's a different way that we can think about our suffering. We often have this false expectation that I'm going to give my life to Jesus and then he's going to like insulate me from the pain and the suffering. But that's not what he promised. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. <laughs> that's a good promise, Jesus. Thanks, bro. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Why does that make me happy? Why is that, what's, what's that? Be of good cheer because you've overcome the world? We're not talking about you, Jesus. We're talking about me. You said in my life I'm going to have trouble. I should be happy because you overcame the world? Why is that good for me? Because I'm in Jesus. And if I'm on Jesus, then I don't have to come under the weight of the world. I can be on top of the weight of the world where Jesus is, seated in the heavenly places, far above every principality and power, every name that is named. Every ruler, I can be up with Jesus. I don't have to come under the weight. So Jesus said, I'm 
not promising you're going to be pain, have, have a life of no pain. What I am promising is in the middle of the pain, you're going to be with me, and you don't have to come under the weight of it. I'm going to be right there with you, and you don't have to come under the weight of the pain. Now, there's sometimes in, in life, there's situations that are just pure evil. I believe that God always wants to deliver us from those things. But often in our life, I think that God allows the pain because he knows it's going to produce something beautiful in us. And so maybe then we need to say, not, Lord, can you get me out of this? But, Lord, what can I get out of this? Lord, what can I get out of this? Is it going to hurt? Yeah. Is it going to be tears? Yeah, probably a lot. But when you shed those tears, friends, know that you are sowing tears that will produce something beautiful in you. You can do so remembering God's faithfulness, remembering his character, remembering his promises. And then those tears don't have to turn to despair. Because when we remember God's past faithfulness, then your season of sorrow actually turns into a season of sowing. Which is actually reason for hope, which is the last thing, and it's very brief. This means then that we can lastly look to the future with hopeful expectation. For those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy carrying sheaves with them. The psalmist could declare and expect God to move now because he knew what God had done in the past. The reason that we must remember God's faithfulness, proclaim his promises, declare his characters, because remembering what he did then reminds us who he will be now, which causes us to have hopeful expectation for tomorrow and for the future. This was an ancient practice in Israel. They had a practice of stopping in the middle of their suffering and saying, well, what did God do before? And they would They'd say it out loud. Be like, hey, remember that one time, though? Hey, my grandparents told me about such and such. Remember in the scroll that we read? This happened. They had this ancient practice, and all of a sudden, it would rise up hope in them. They'd be like, what? Wait, that's what God did that. God, that's who God is. If God's that, then he's going to be that now, right? That's who God's going to be right now. It was an ancient practice. It's even what Paul did in the New Testament when he said in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, he's looking back, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Friends, if God did not spare his son and Jesus did not spare his own life but he gave up his life for you, how will he not give you all things that you need? How would he not give you what you need? If God was faithful then, how could he not be faithful now and in the future? His past track record is our future and present assurance. And so let me just encourage you with this today, that if you are in a season of suffering or a season of pain, a season where maybe you're shedding a lot of tears or there's a lot of unknowns, maybe it's a season of doubt, know that your season of suffering can actually be a season of sowing if you will remember God's faithfulness. Just like this promise was a promise for ancient Israel, this is a promise for you today that those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Not they maybe will, might possibly. He says they will reap with songs of joy. Can you just say it with me as we finish? Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Y'all didn't do it. Let's do it again. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. One more time. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Let's pray together.
Lord, thank you for the promise of your word. I love reading stuff like this last little section here that we just quoted because I don't always see it or understand it, and I have a hard time believing it sometimes, but I'm like, I don't know, man. I mean, the Lord said it. He, like, preserved it in his word. I'm going to just go with this. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And so we ask God that um, hopeful expectation would rise up in our hearts today. That for those of us who have been struggling and wondering, dang, where's the Lord at? Or I expected him to come through like this. Or I can't see him in the middle of this. We pray that we'd be able to look back at what you've done and who you've been. We pray that if nothing else, we'd be able to look to the cross and remember, wow, the Lord loves me. And if he has loved me like that, then surely he will love me now in the way that I need him to love me. Surely if he has provided my salvation, then he will give me all things that I need in this moment. So we trust you to do that, God. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to enter into a time of response right now. And if you're new to uh, reality, this second set of musical worship is designed for us to just respond to what God has been speaking to us. It's, it's not just like, an extra little time that's like optional. It's like, man, we believe it's actually one of the most important times of the gathering because while we believe that worship prepares our hearts for the word of God, we believe that the word of God actually prepares us to worship. And so we want to respond now in worship. We want to respond in surrender to him just saying, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to look back at your past faithfulness and I want to trust you right now. It's the reason we have the carpets here. You can come forward. You can take a posture of surrender. You can take a posture of humility before him. I've often seen that when I, I physically do something, I get on my knees or put out my hands in front of me, that it often helps my heart to follow. If my heart's being stubborn, I'm like, I'm going to make my body do something that's a little contrary to my heart right now. And often my heart will follow behind and say, yeah, 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 that's right. We need to surrender to the Lord right now. So I would encourage you to do that. The communion elements are up front for us to remember that God did not spare his own son. Jesus did not spare his life. And as you partake of the communion, believer, as you partake of the communion, as you take the bread and you take the cup, remember, okay, Jesus, if you did that, then that shows me you love me. And if you love me, that I'm banking on you acting in a loving way toward me. This shows me that you're good, and if you're good to me, I'm, act, I'm, I'm banking on you being good in my life. Remember what he has done, and I'll allow it to, to, to rise up faith in your heart today. There's also gonna be a couple people on the right or the left of the stage who are just here to pray with you and for you. Any need that you have, they are, they are here to help bring that need to the Lord. Whatever it is, Let's respond now to what God has done.